Pakistan and Iran are launching military strikes on each other's territories, escalating longtime tensions between the two neighbors. Coming up, Iran has also attacked targets in Iraq and Syria. What's going on with Iran? Today is Thursday, Friday, January 20th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a deepening rift between the Biden administration and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. At virtually every turn, uh, President Biden is being rebuffed uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu. One rejected demand, the prospect of a future two-state solution with Palestinians. And Democrats are counting on young voters to come out in big numbers this year. But first, they have to figure out how to reach the generation that seems to always be online. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Well, heading into a primary next week, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is firing back against former President Donald Trump's false claims about who can vote in New Hampshire. Here's NPR's Tamara Keith. As the New Hampshire primary closes in, Trump is trying to discount a potentially strong performance from Haley by going back to an old tactic of his. Haley is pushing back. When he goes out there and says, She's going to go and try and win New Hampshire by getting Democrats to vote. That is a lie. Democrats cannot vote in a Republican primary. They haven't been able to change their registration for months now. In fact, the deadline to change party registration was in October. But undeclared voters, which are the largest share of the electorate in New Hampshire, can vote in the Republican primary. And they are a key part of Haley's base of support. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Milford, New Hampshire. Thousands of people have turned out in snowy weather in the nation's capital for the March for Life rally, the annual event against abortion, coming during an election year when many voters will decide if the next president should be someone who opposes or upholds stronger restrictions on abortion. Conservative House Speaker Mike Johnson told the crowd today this is their moment to turn the tide on public opinion. We have people from all walks of life, all ages, all experiences, all backgrounds, and we're all joining to celebrate life and what it means to be an American. But at ballot boxes in a number of states, voters have rejected strict abortion limits. They include Kansas, Ohio, Kentucky, and Virginia. A grand jury in New Mexico has indicted actor Alec Baldwin on one charge of involuntary manslaughter. NPR's Anastasia Yulgas reports the charge stems from the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins in 2021. Helena Hutchins died on the set of the Western movie Rust. Baldwin, the film's lead actor and one of its producers, was holding the gun during a rehearsal when it went off. Hutchins was killed and director Joel Souza was wounded. Baldwin has previously said he remembers pulling back the gun's hammer, but not its trigger. He's also said he was told that the gun did not contain any live rounds and that there was supposed to be no live ammunition on the movie set, but the gun fired. Last year, a court dismissed another involuntary manslaughter charge against Baldwin after prosecutors learned the gun may have been modified. After new expert analysis of the gun, prosecutors refiled their charge. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. U.S. stocks have ended the day higher. The Dow closed up nearly 400 points or more than 1% to end the day at 37,863. The S&P was up 1.2 percent. The Nasdaq closed up 1.7 percent. 
It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey unveiled a plan today that would allow Massachusetts cities and towns to increase local meals and lodging taxes, as well as motor vehicle excise taxes. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports her proposal is getting mixed reviews. Municipalities generate the bulk of their tax revenue from property taxes. Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation President Doug Howgate supports taking some of that burden away from homeowners. The idea of enabling municipalities to diversify some of their revenue sources to areas like uh, consumption that occurs in their town or people who are uh, staying at hotels and lodging makes sense. But Massachusetts Restaurant Association President Stephen Clark is concerned about raising the meals tax. The local option meals tax is one of the few taxes that's already subject to inflation because menu prices go up every year, so the meals tax always goes up. Clark says the tax increase would cost consumers an additional $15 million. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The operator of several Massachusetts hospitals says financial challenges are jeopardizing its ability to keep them running. WBR's Deborah Becker reports the for-profit system Steward Healthcare is in talks with the state to try to stay afloat. In an emailed statement, Stewart says the past few years and the pandemic have devastated community hospitals, including those it operates in Massachusetts. The main issue, Stewart says, is the gap between reimbursement rates for community hospitals and large academic medical centers. Healthcare consultant Dr. John Friedman says if Stewart ends up shuttering some facilities, it'll be a problem. If indeed these practices have to close, even if they're acquired and physicians have to make a shift, it's a logistical nightmare potentially. State lawmakers say they've provided millions in pandemic relief to all hospitals, including stewards, and they'll work with the governor to monitor the situation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. For the second time, Mass General Hospital is asking the state to approve its request to add 94 inpatient beds in its facility under construction. MGH says an increase in the number of beds seeking uh, people seeking care has led to patients staying in the emergency department and even in hallways. The state rejected the first request, fearing it would increase health care costs. 27 degrees now in Boston, some snow flurries out there, depending on where you are. Most of them are falling south of Boston and on Cape Cod. Overnight lows tonight in the teens. Tomorrow overcast, maybe a few more flurries. Temperatures in the teens to low 20s. Then sunny on Sunday, inching to the upper 20s. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The U.S. and its ally Israel are fighting Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and Houthis in Yemen. All three of those groups have backing from Iran. Meanwhile, Iran itself has recently attacked targets in Iraq, Syria, and even Pakistan. To talk about Iran's overarching strategy here, we've reached Karim Sajidpour, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Ari. Let's start with the groups that Iran has been supporting in Yemen, Gaza, and Lebanon. What interest does the country have in providing weapons and training to the Houthis or Hezbollah or Hamas. In Iran's 1979 revolution, essentially you had a U.S. allied monarchy, the Shah of Iran, that was replaced almost overnight with a viscerally anti-American theocracy, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And from 1979 to the present, the last 45 years, 
there's essentially been three pillars to Iran's grand strategy. And the first is to try to evict America from the Middle East. The second is to try to replace Israel with Palestine. And the third is to try to bring down the US-led world order. And what Iran has done very effectively in the Middle East is to fill power vacuums. So the countries where Iran wields influence, you mentioned three of them, but there's really five of them. There's Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Gaza and the Palestinian territories. These are essentially all failing or failed states. And Iran with its proxies, its militias, has filled these power vacuums in order to try to advance those goals I mentioned earlier, to try to kick out America from the Middle East and replace Israel with Palestine. And obviously Iran's proxies, the Houthis in Yemen, Hamas in Gaza, Lebanese Hezbollah, share these same goals. If Iran can outsource the fight, then why would it engage in the direct strikes that we've seen in Syria, Iraq, and Pakistan recently? And of course, Pakistan is kind of different from the others. It's the only country that is to the east of Iran. So maybe let's put a pin in that. Why is Iran engaging in these fights directly? It's an important question, Ari, and it really goes to the challenge and dilemma that the Biden administration has vis-a-vis Iran because the Biden administration clearly does not want to be involved in another conflict in the Middle East. It's clear that the American public, after two decades of failure in Iraq and Afghanistan, don't want to be involved in another conflict in the Middle East. And so on one hand, we're constantly signaling to the Iranian government that we want to de-escalate. We don't want to fight. But the the challenge is, if you're only signaling to them de-escalation, that inadvertently emboldens an adversary like Iran, and then you don't end up deterring them. And so the fact that Iran has actually publicly come out and claimed credit for the recent attacks in Syria and Iraq means that we're not doing a good job of deterring Iran right now. They don't obviously feel that concerned about the costs of this uh, escalation campaign against U.S. forces in the, in the Middle East. And then can you help us understand how Pakistan is involved? It's not immediately clear whether and how that relates to the war in Gaza. The recent skirmish with Pakistan was more of an outlier. You know, on one hand, I understand when, when two large countries, one of which is a nuclear power, are launching strikes on each other's territory, people get very alarmed. But the reality was that Iran went after an opposition group on Pakistani territory. Pakistan responded by growing after the same group of ethnic minorities in Iran, the Baluchis. And the sad thing was, it was essentially just civilians that were killed. And I think there's very little likelihood that Iran and Pakistan, it's going to further deteriorate into a larger conflict. Do you see all of this as just collectively increasing the risk of a direct hot war between the US and Iran? Or are groups like Hamas and Hezbollah serving as proxies that allow the two sides to avoid a direct confrontation? The danger here is if and when either a strike from Iran or one of its proxies actually kills numerous U.S. soldiers or civilians in one of these countries in the Middle East, it's going to be very difficult for the Biden administration to look the other way. Now, the Israeli government in the past has had something called the octopus doctrine, which says we're no longer going to respond to Iran's tentacles in the region. So if Iran's proxies attack us from Lebanon, Syria or or Gaza, 
we're no longer going to simply respond to those areas, but we're going to go after the head of the octopus in, in Iran. That's also a danger, that if there's a, a conflict, a skirmish between Lebanese Hezbollah and the Israelis, that the Israelis will choose to take the fight to Iran. And so, you know, Iran's technical capacities has, has improved quite considerably over the last decade. Their drones, rockets, and missiles are much more precise. But, you know, in the, the fog of war, uh, it's certainly a possibility that they could either deliberately or inadvertently kill U.S. soldiers. And I think that's the, the danger that the Biden administration faces. Some of these groups, like the Houthis, have said they'll stop when there's a ceasefire in Gaza. Is that true for Iran itself? Would it de-escalate if the war ends, or is there a different calculus here? I actually don't think that's true for either Iran or its proxies. Hmm. These groups, their strategy is not merely defensive. It's also offensive. They, they genuinely want to... They don't believe Israel should exist. They want to replace Israel with Palestine. They don't believe there should be U.S. forces in the Middle East. So despite our efforts to, U.S. efforts to try to de-escalate, I think they're going to continue to try to carry out their strategy, their ideology. And I should note, Ari, that there's a distinction between being pro-Palestine and anti-Israel. You know, these groups, Iran and these proxies, are definitely anti-Israel. But I wouldn't argue that they're pro-Palestinian and that they are not really doing anything to advance the cause of security and, and prosperity for Palestinians. And in general, Iran and these five proxies I, I talked about, you know, they are essentially presiding over enormous misery in their own population. So in some ways, they're purporting to care more about um, you know, justice and, and, and prosperity for Palestinians that certainly they've provided their own populations. Kareem Sajidpour is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. This weekend marks 51 years since the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision, which established a constitutional right to abortion during the early stages of pregnancy. That decision led to decades of organizing among anti-abortion rights activists who created the annual March for Life rally in Washington, D.C. Even though Roe was overturned in 2022, the march continues. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz was at this year's march and joins us now. Hi there. Hi. So Jacqueline, now that Roe's been overturned, what what is the focus of the March for Life? Well, event organizers and some folks at the march today said the focus for anti-abortion activists is now especially on changing state laws to further restrict abortion access. Their message today was the fight is not over. So when Roe was overturned, it left the decision on abortion restrictions up to states. More than a dozen states have total or near abortion bans. But in each instance where abortion rights have been on the ballot since the Supreme Court's reversal, anti-abortion advocates have lost. Now, it is not exactly a warm day in Washington, D.C., yet you were out there with the marchers at the March for Life. Tell us what you saw and heard from people there. Uh in addition to the snow, um, uh, thousands of people showed up to march this morning. I spoke to Kathy Johnston from Ohio, who shared what two years after Rose reversal means for the movement. I don't think it went far enough, but I think that we were all aware that it was just going to move it from a national level to a state level and that the fight wasn't done. 
And Johnston added that she believes that the issue over abortion access is now correctly placed at the state level. But other people still believe it's the responsibility of the federal government to restrict abortion access across the board. Here's Lesik Siski from Maryland. Ultimately, we, we don't want to just make abortion illegal. We want to make it unthinkable. So it's going to be still a long, long, long struggle. And here's that he's actually here for his 50th March for Life. His 50th March. Wow. I mean, every year this march draws people from around the country. And that includes some from states where voters have already decided on abortion measures. Is that figuring into today's event? Yeah, so speakers at the march encourage the marchers to bring the fight over abortion back home and continue to reinforce the idea that the fight to restrict abortion is not over. That's especially because in the aftermath of the Supreme Court overturning the constitutional right to abortion, there's been a concerted effort among abortion rights activists to take the issue directly to voters via ballot initiatives and other measures. Like in Johnston's home state of Ohio, where voters last November decided to amend their state constitution to guarantee the right to abortion and other reproductive rights. And this is going to be a big part of what we follow in this election year, which states ultimately have more ballot measures on the table for voters in November. And of course, voters will also be voting this year in the presidential election. A lot of focus on that. So Jacqueline, how did the upcoming election and national politics figure in at today's event? Uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson and other lawmakers spoke at the rally before marchers took to the street. During Johnson's speech, he told the crowd his parents were teenagers when his mother unexpectedly became pregnant with him. He made digs at President Biden, who received some booze from the crowd. That's because Biden's campaign continues to make abortion a central focus, saying abortion rights is a driving issue for voters. Vice President Kamala Harris is kicking off a reproductive freedoms tour next week in Wisconsin. She's planning to travel across the country to host events that highlight the impacts abortion bans have had. And on Tuesday, Biden and Harris will appear on stage at a campaign rally in Northern Virginia to mark the anniversary of Roe. That's NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening on this Friday afternoon to 90.9 WBUR. Gains on Wall Street today. The Dow pulled in more than 1%. S&P jumped to an all-time high today as it rose nearly one and a quarter percent The Nasdaq grew by nearly one and three quarters percent The State Department of Transportation is urging drivers to use caution on the roads this afternoon and overnight tonight. We haven't gotten a lot of snow today, but the state says crews are chemically treating highways, which are slick in some spots. Over at Logan Airport, more than 250 flights have been delayed. Uh, Airline tracker FlightAware is reporting 40 cancellations. Massport blames the problems on winter weather across the U.S. The forecast and more are coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. In the forecast, look for cloudy skies through the evening. Most of the snow fell well south of Boston and on the Cape. Overnight lows tonight should be in the teens. And then tomorrow should be gray skies through the day. Maybe a few flurries here and there. Temperatures in the teens to low 20s. Sunny on Sunday, inching to the upper 20s. It's 420. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex. 
where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Join here and now's Robin Young, February 6th at City Space, for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason about his hit novel, North Woods. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A rift is deepening between the Biden administration and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The backdrop is the war in Gaza and what the future should hold for Palestinians. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. President Biden used to speak to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu regularly in the first months of the Gaza war. But today they held their first conversation in nearly a month. In a press conference last night, Netanyahu said sometimes he has to say no even to Israel's best friends, meaning the U.S. Netanyahu is rejecting the U.S. demand for a two-state solution to the conflict, Israel living alongside a future state of Palestine. Netanyahu said for the foreseeable future, Israel must hold security control over the entire territory, because Israel has been attacked from areas it relinquished. At virtually every turn, uh, President Biden is being rebuffed uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu. Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen speaking to NPR. President Biden has tried to jawbone Netanyahu into reducing the number of civilian casualties, allowing more humanitarian assistance into Gaza, uh, talking about a two-state future to provide some light at the end of this very dark tunnel. And Prime Minister Netanyahu is giving the United States the stiff arm. Before the Hamas attack on October 7th and Israel's military bombardment of Gaza, the U.S. was trying to broker historic diplomatic ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Yesterday, the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. said that would be possible if there's a ceasefire in Gaza and a guaranteed path toward a Palestinian state. Such a deal with Saudi Arabia would be Netanyahu's number one priority, but he's being tied down by his far-right political partners who oppose any more rights for Palestinians. David Makovsky of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy says President Biden wants Netanyahu to fight off his far-right flank, just as Biden is fighting off outrage among progressive Democrats over the war. I think he says, listen, you know, man, this is a war isn't easy. We, we, we want the same things. We want Israel safe from the terror of Hamas. You know, we're doing things that are hard for us. You should do things that are hard for you. There's also a rift growing inside Netanyahu's own war cabinet about where Israel should take the war next. One of the five officials in the inner circle leading the war, 
Gadi Eisenkot, says only a ceasefire can get Israeli hostages out of Gaza and not the military pressure Netanyahu says is needed. On Israeli TV, he said Netanyahu shares responsibility for the, quote, biggest security failure in the country's history and called for elections within months. Those are signs of frustration with Netanyahu, not just from the Biden administration, but from within Israel's own war cabinet. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. China's premier spoke this week at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, saying the Chinese economy is doing just fine and making a pitch to international investors that China is open for business. But as NPR's John Ruich reports, other signals out of Beijing have been conveying a different message. As premier, it's Li Qiang's job to talk up the economy. Here he is speaking through an interpreter at Davos. In the past five years, the return on foreign investment, foreign direct investment in China stands at around 9%, which is quite competitive globally. So I would say that choosing the Chinese market is not a risk, but an opportunity. But Li's message stands in contrast to what his boss seems to be focused on. That's Chinese leader Xi Jinping speaking at parliament last year. Security is the foundation for development, he says. Stability is a prerequisite for prosperity. Sheena Chestnut Greitens is a China expert at the University of Texas, Austin. So I think that the idea that economic growth created the basis for stability for the, the Chinese Communist Party was the conventional wisdom. And I think that was the conventional wisdom until pretty recently. So he's actually inverted the cause and effect in that relationship. And that's meant the economy is increasingly seen through the lens of security. That's had a noticeable effect, according to Dan Rosen, a partner at the Rhodium Group, an economic research firm. A year ago, virtually all of the CEOs and senior executives that we speak to at Rhodium Group believed that by the end of the year, China as they knew it was going to be back. The country's draconian COVID rules were in the rearview mirror, and everyone expected the economy to rev back up, but it didn't. By December 31st, or really by the fall of 2023, I'd say 100% of the CEOs felt differently. Not only were the authorities not taking strong enough measures to revive the economy, some thought, They were doing other things that made businesses nervous. Those include the rollout of tough rules on data security and revisions to an anti-espionage law that limit the kind of information that companies can collect in China. There have been raids on a handful of Western consultancies, and the authorities have intensified a campaign to root out spies. Business confidence has suffered. A survey by the European Chamber of Commerce in China a few months ago showed that two-thirds of its members said it had become harder to do business in China over the prior year. Three in five said they were losing business opportunities because of red tape or regulation. Foreign direct investment, in particular, has fallen off a cliff. Basically, China is facing a a dilemma. Ling Chen is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. They need to promote economic growth on the one hand and also emphasize the securitization of the economy, on the other hand. Balancing that has been tough. Different agencies have sent out conflicting signals. The usually secretive Ministry of State Security, for instance, has recently become vocal about the economy. 
Chen says the contradictions show that the authorities are responding to internal pressure as the economy slows and external pressure as trade and political frictions with the U.S. and others grow. They first of all have to prioritize survival. Um, before they talk about other things like diversifying the economy. But it's a catch-22. At some point, analysts say survival also requires a dynamic economy. And there have been recent signs that the government is aware of that fact. They've been ramping up steps to support growth. And in August, the authorities issued a list of 24 measures to stabilize foreign investment. Jens Eskeland, president of the European Chamber of Commerce in China, says that's welcome, but it raises a question. What we're asking ourselves is whether this is just a tactical play until China is doing better economically and has become more self-reliant, or is it an expression of, of a real shift in, in attitude. A tactical play or a real shift in attitude? He says people he's talked to who've been in China a while tend to be on the cynical side. John Ruich, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is WBUR. Good reason to head to downtown Boston this winter. The whimsical and weird pop-up art installations, including a 60-foot-long whale skeleton made of sleek steel beams. We'll give you a preview in about 10 minutes on WBUR. Voters in New Hampshire are gearing up to cast their primary ballots. Tuesday, live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primary starts at 7 o'clock here at WBUR. Get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden spoke by phone to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today for the first time in nearly a month. The call came one day after Netanyahu dismissed U.S. calls for a two-state solution in Gaza. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby has more on the talks. The president and the prime minister discussed ongoing efforts to secure the release of all remaining hostages that are being held by Hamas. The two leaders also reviewed the situation in Gaza and the shift to targeted operations that will enable the flow of increasing amounts of humanitarian assistance while keeping the military pressure on Hamas and its leaders significant. The Israeli prime minister also rejected calls by the U.S. and other allies to scale back the fighting in Gaza. 
One member of Israel's war cabinet said that only a ceasefire deal can win the release of dozens of hostages still being held by Hamas. Meantime, Pakistan's top military and civilian officials are conducting a security review today amid heightened tensions with Iran. NPR's Peter Kenyon says both countries have signaled a desire to de-escalate after each launched attacks on the other soil. After an Iranian attack targeted Jaysh al-Adil militants in southwest Pakistan, Islamabad responded with strikes that Iran says left nine people dead, including children. Iran's foreign ministry issued a statement saying its territorial integrity is one of Iran's red lines and it expects its, quote, friendly and brotherly neighbor Pakistan to adhere strongly to its commitment to preventing the establishment of bases and groups of armed terrorists on Pakistani soil. Officials from both countries say they're looking for ways to de-escalate the situation. The exchange of attacks are seen as the most prominent cross-border violence in recent years and have raised fears of further destabilizing the region. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street. The Dow up more than 1%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Workers with Boston's Health Care for the Homeless are warning people who are living on the streets about the dangerously cold weather heading our way. The program's medical director, Dr. Peter Smith, says the temperatures, along with a wind chill, can cause frostbite on exposed skin within a minute. We have our medical respite unit, Barbara McGinnis House, that is available for patients who are starting to develop hypothermia or early frostbite. We often take in patients so that they can get out of the cold. Outreach workers are distributing warm clothing and telling people where the nearest emergency shelter is located. A 37-year-old New Hampshire man is dead after getting trapped overnight in the White Mountains. The New Hampshire Fish and Game Department says rescue efforts were hampered by strong winds and waist-deep snow. They say Christopher Roma was an experienced hiker. He was found dead early Wednesday. The MBTA expects a budget gap for the upcoming fiscal year to grow to about $600 million. Today, the T's financial experts blame new hiring and worse-than-expected ridership for the fall. They said part of that gap could be covered with federal pandemic aid, but not all of it. If you're in Boston Seaport this weekend, you could encounter packs of colorful two-legged animals. WBR's Andrea Shea has more on the convening of furry culture at the Westin Hotel for a convention known as Anthro New England. I'm surrounded by lions and tigers and bears. Furries are fascinated by anthropomorphic animals in art, cartoons, comics, literature, and a lot of them have traveled from far away, including 29-year-old Brogan Ford of Atlanta, Georgia. I kind of grew up kind of like an outcast, sort of, but um, when I found the furry community, it was very inclusive. So I would say the main draw of it is the feeling of community and camaraderie. According to Anthro New England organizers, more than 3,000 furries are expected to attend the conference over the weekend. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. 26 degrees in Boston. Look for cloudy skies overnight. Tonight should be pretty cold. Temperatures in the 20s, but feeling more like the teens when the wind blows. Then for tomorrow, cloudy, maybe some snow flurries. Still cold. Temperatures around 20 degrees. And then should see the sunshine for Sunday, but still on the cold side. The time is 4.35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Freud's Last Session. 
a new film starring Anthony Hopkins as Sigmund Freud and Matthew Goode as C.S. Lewis, who converge in a battle over the existence of God, now playing only in theaters. And from Jitasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector, Jitasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at jitasa.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Country singer-songwriter Brittany Spencer says she has the city where she grew up to thank for her introduction to the genre. I found country music in Baltimore, you know, from my friends who people would look at and probably think they don't listen to country music, but they do. You know, we were going to church downtown and my friend Keisha said, you need to listen to back then the Dixie Chicks. And I did and I fell in love. Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Spencer grew up singing in church choirs and on praise teams, and she was immediately drawn to the harmonies of country music. That affinity led her to leave Baltimore for Nashville a decade ago with little plan and few connections. And she says hitting her stride in Nashville took time. I don't know, just a lot of trial and error and a lot of like, I don't know, following little pebbles in the forest. That's what it feels like. It's gruesome and and wonderful just not knowing what the hell you're doing. In 2020, her cover of the High Women song Crowded Table caught the attention of the country supergroups Maren Morris and Amanda Shires. And now Britney Spencer is out with her first album. It's called My Stupid Life. The first single from that album, Bigger Than the Song, pays tribute to some of the women who came before her. I love that chorus because you're name-checking some of the greats. Reba, Queen Latifah, Alanis Morissette, Dolly Parton. I mean, the list goes on, and it's this incredible trip down memory lane paying respect to these women that have given us all so much. Tell us about that song. You know, it's funny. I actually, I didn't know until I started doing interviews that I name-checked almost all women. I think it's only one guy I check in this song, Johnny, but I still pair him with June. (laughs) And you didn't realize that. No, I didn't realize it. That wasn't intentional at all. I just, I love women. I really do. Like, I think we're so cool. And I think, like, especially right now at a time in music where, particularly in country music, where we're not always seeing women shine. uh, I think, like, on the charts right now, I don't think there are any women on the top 20 charts right now. Why do you think that is? I actually, I don't know. And I also just don't care um, because it's just stupid. I'm just waiting on a day that changes. Talk to us about the process of putting together this album. What was going on in your life when you were recording it, and how does that reflect itself in the music? When we were recording, I was in the middle of touring, um, so I was kind of deliriously tired. And when I walked into the studio, like Daniel, the the producer, Daniel Tashi, he's like very, very good. He's very creative. He'll get in the studio. He's kind of like a studio rat. <laughs> and then I had some of my friends come in. and Yeah, like who? Ashley Moreau came in. Maren Morris, she came in. She sang on uh, Night In. That was so fun. She's one of my heroes, so that was really fun to get to watch. Grace Potter, she sent in her, um, her backgrounds on Reaching Out. Like, I really made a record with people that I really admire, respect, enjoy, uh, love. It was, it was a fun process. Like, bringing this all together was, uh, was definitely a dream. 
Hi. Hey, girl. Hi. Uh, absolutely nothing. What's up? I want to ask you about a song you've mentioned a couple of times. The song is called Night In, and it's this fun anthem. It celebrates friendship and women coming together and the joy of not going out all the time. And I have to say, as a person who also loves to stay in, this was a very deeply relatable song. Can you tell us about it? I mean, like, I'm an introvert with FOMO. I really want to, like, you know, stay in, but I also don't want to miss out. I feel like extroverts always get the fun turn-up songs. Dude, there's so much happiness in doing not a goddamn thing. I just want a night in, getting high with friends. Not a night on the town, killing time again. No high heels, stomping down the city streets. No drunk boys, mama, can I buy you a drink? I actually wrote this song. It started with my friend Jessica Kane, a writer here in town. I went to her house, and she, like, made this bomb dinner like it was like salmon and like something else and it was fire and then we watched Cruella and then we like I think I don't even know if we paused the movie or if we ended up waiting until the end but we started just writing a song about wanting to be in the house I can hear where we, we were just stream of consciousness like writing and just talking like very conversational and uh I think uh being sleep deprived definitely helped that song <laughs> You've mentioned some of the incredible people that you collaborated with on this album, and in reaching out, that includes Grace Potter on vocals, Jason Isbell on guitar, and I know you've performed alongside both of them. That song is just so powerful. I don't have a tank full of happy endings That ship sailed a long time ago Can you tell us where that's coming from? It was my first, maybe not my first, but definitely one of my first attempts at at kind of describing a deep sadness that I felt most of my life. And not really placing blame on any one thing or person, but just trying to describe the events of my life in a way that hopefully, um, I don't know, articulates this feeling that I've had. This It's really a song about longing. It's a song about wanting to be seen. So I'm reaching out for something better than this. I don't know what it is. I'm a black girl from Baltimore City in country music. Of course belonging is a thing. It's and it's even more of a thing for me right now, honestly. I don't know, it's about wanting to know if like my story and my existence matters. A lot of people feel like their stories don't matter because they're not reflected. They're not represented all the time. And I just, I come from that world of people where almost sometimes like your existence can feel inferior. That's, it's not something that weighs on my brain all the time, but it's definitely like if you, if you poke around deep enough, you'll, you'll get to that part where you can hear in me where I still want to know where I belong or if I do. I, I do have to ask, I mean, as you said, you're a black woman in a genre that has not always made space for black women, even in recent years. But today, there are more artists that look like you and me in mm-hmm. country music. Do you think that for the genre, we're at a turning point and that we'll see more black women country artists like you who are stepping out and getting noticed for their talent? I hope so. That's that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of just my only answer. I hope so. You know, more than more than that, I hope that there's somebody out there or there are people out there who, you know, who might have a different story. You know, they might look different. They might 
have a different background, a different upbringing, something that makes them not always feel connected. And I hope that and seeing what's happening right now in country music, it encourages so many people to, to pursue the thing that honestly, it took me years to decide to actually do. It took me years to like decide to leave Baltimore for this reason. My desire for, for this music, it became so overwhelming that it became like louder than the voices in my head. So I hope the industry changes, you know, because the world most certainly is. Brittany, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me on. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. You may have seen the photos on social media. A pair of giant inflatable clown heads wedged between two buildings near downtown crossing in Boston. It's one of 16 public art pieces installed to increase wintertime foot traffic downtown. WBUR's Amelia Mason headed into the city to check out some of the other provocative displays. It's snowing in Boston, and the trains are delayed. People shuffle along the slushy sidewalks, heads down. But one thing is able to stop them in their tracks, a 60-foot-long whale made of skeletal steel beams. What do you guys think? You like it? Yeah. <laughs> Michael Nichols is the president of the downtown Boston Business Improvement District, which commissioned the sculpture. The whale was the first of 16 public artworks to appear in the neighborhood in mid-December. The point of the whale is to draw visitors to Boston's downtown. So this is Bromfield Street, a street that you know has struggled a little bit more um, Post-COVID, it's got a Nichols lot leads us down a quieter street to a sculpture by the American artist Mark Jenkins. It's one of several hyper-realistic human figures in unrealistic locations that now pepper the neighborhood. It's this gentleman hanging from the bottom of the fire escape here. The figure is dressed all in black with a hoodie pulled over his head. He's upside down, defying gravity as he walks along the underside of the fire escape. I don't think I would have noticed it. Yeah. Mike McCart of Boston stops to take a photo. He says it reminds him of a painting by M.C. Escher. Because it's very similar to the picture where you have these ascending and descending staircases and people are walking up and down and you can't really tell what's up and what's down. So this guy's actually walking on the underside of a staircase. I guess down a staircase, I don't know. <laughs> Little Spider-Man effect. Another Jenkins sculpture hangs some 30 feet in the air, a few blocks away over the entrance to Winter Street. A woman on a swing, silhouetted against the heavy white sky. Daryl Ann Gain McCalla of Roxbury is not impressed. It's just weird. Like, it kind of is concerning because it looks like a person about to jump. She's not the first to have that reaction. The city already removed another Jenkins sculpture in response to emergency calls from concerned citizens. But McCalla, an artist who goes by Miranda Wrights, has another beef with the installation. If it speaks to me, if it moves me, I love public art. But there's a problem that a lot of art is not public art. It's art in public that the public has no say in. McCalla says there aren't enough opportunities for Boston artists to get big commissions like this one. She thinks a local would be able to make connections with the city's history that outsiders can't. As we head down the street, Nichols says that nearly all the art his organization has presented in past years has been by local artists. This time, they worked with three curators from Canada who brought in work from around the world. We should not, though, as a city, exclusively 
focus on local artists. We uh, should not, right? What? We should. This is a cosmopolitan city. It is a major American city. It has, you know, a, a wonderful opportunity to connect the art and artists and their messages of the world to inform and entertain our local audiences. And then as a result, our local audiences get influenced by that and develop and redevelop their own artwork. One of the final installations is going up on the sidewalk outside Macy's. Workers are installing four bicycles that light up and play music when you pedal them. Sherry Cresta of Revere stops to watch. One of the workers invites her to hop on. As Cresta pedals faster, the bike starts to play Shipping Up to Boston by the Dropkick Murphys. Impulsively, Cresta grabs her hat from off her head and flings it into the air. Afterwards, she's giddy. It was amazing. I had a liver transplant, so oh my gosh. it's hard to breathe sometimes. But Okay, well, take, take a breath and let me let, me let you no, breathe. No, I need exercise. That's the whole point. Oh, that was awesome. When the bikes are fully installed, they'll project images onto the sidewalk when you pedal them. Hearing this, Cresta says she'll definitely come back. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. You can see all 16 art pieces in downtown Boston through April 14th. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com And Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. BridgeW.edu On last week's Wait Wait, it became clear that the rules of our games are somewhat flexible. Like roaches! I'm going to give it to you, wolf spiders. Wait, what? And Peter Sagal will probably bend over backwards to make sure actor David Oyelowo wins our game. I mean, he played MLK. Join us for the news quiz that plays it loose. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the last push for the vote in New Hampshire. Most of the snowfall today has been limited to the South Shore and Cape Cod. A couple of inches have collected on the Cape, enough to create slick spots on the roads, especially as temperatures fall to the teens overnight tonight. Tomorrow, clouds should last through much of the day. We're stuck in the teens and the low 20s. The wind chill should make it feel as if it's down in the single digits. Then for Sunday, clouds clear out to let the sun shine in. Temperatures should reach the upper 20s Sunday, but feel a lot colder thanks to the hefty wind. 25 degrees in Boston at 450. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Can memes be used for political change? We might find out this year. NPR's Elena Moore joined the South Carolina Young Democrats for a recent political meme training to find out. Students enter the Zoom room. It's time for Meme University. Welcome to Memes 101 from Internet Explorer to Meme Lord. That's Organizer Memes, an anonymous account run by Gen Z and young millennials mostly based on X, formerly known as Twitter. The account has nearly 35,000 followers. They spoke to NPR anonymously due to concern of being doxxed or having personal information leaked. Since 2020, the group has trained left-leaning organizations on memifying politics. To stand out, you've got to do something different. And memes are something different, and they're something that can go viral a lot more easily. 
To them, political memes are a really fast way to spread information. Campaigns can use them to fundraise, gain more followers, and yes, go viral. And while memeing doesn't magically get young people engaged, Organizer Memes says it does send an important message. The memes signal that you're trying new things. The memes signal that you care about reaching young people. So much of the time, people don't feel that they're even being reached out to until three months before the election. Democrats are counting on young voters this year, even as polls show youth enthusiasm is down for President Biden. I think reaching people online from trusted messengers is the way to address this concern. That's Stuart Perlmutter, the founder of the firm At Advocacy, which works with political content creators to highlight progressive causes. They hosted the training, along with the youth voter nonprofit Reorganized. Perlmutter says Democrats need political influencers as an essential part of campaign strategy. Memes has to be a thing. TikTok has to be a thing. As a campaign, if you're not communicating in those channels, your opponent is. The Biden campaign plans to directly collaborate with influencers like they did in 2020. They're also embracing the dark Brandon meme. A graphic of Biden wearing aviators and shooting lasers out of his eyes can be found on the campaign website and merch. It's a play on a viral conservative insult that Democrats reclaimed. Republicans aren't shying away from meme culture either. Former President Donald Trump also shares memes on his campaign socials and reportedly connected with a network of meme creators that support him. Conservative groups like Turning Point poke fun at Democratic leaders and voters. George Washington University professor Dave Karp says even with everybody trying to meet young people where they are, the messages are very different. Turning Point USA is trying to make conservatism look cool to young people. The Biden administration is trying to communicate to young people he's accomplished these policy things that aren't showing up in the news, but you should be excited about. But getting those messages to resonate is the challenge. Back at Meme Boot Camp, the class has an assignment. So let's all try and make a meme. They have five minutes, time flies, students post their memes in the chat, and the session wraps up. After it's done, Organizer Memes tells NPR they're committed to doing more trainings this year and helping young people talk politics. One meme at a time. Elena Moore, NPR News. Our Planet Money podcast team recently became a record label solely for one artist, Ernest Jackson, and a long-lost song he recorded in the 1970s about inflation. Inflation is in the nation, and it's about to put us all the way. The song ended up being in the top 1% of songs streamed on Spotify ever. Sadly, the singer and songwriter Ernest Jackson has died. NPR's Sarah Gonzalez has this tribute. When we at Planet Money first got our hands on this old cassette tape with the song Inflation on it, it felt like we were supposed to do something with it. And then when we flew down to Baton Rouge to meet the singer and songwriter, we knew we were going to go all in on Ernest Jackson and the song he recorded with a band called Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo. Yeah, Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo. He just had this voice, this incredible, gravelly voice. A lot of people say I sound like Satchmo now, you know, even when I talk. Ernest called everyone baby. He loved a good double entendre. He was funny and confident. Yes, because I'm not an ugly man, if I may say so. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was truly a joy to be around, and he never stopped hoping he would find fame. Yes, indeed, because that's been my dream since I was a little boy. I've always wanted to be a superstar. 
Ernest started singing at his church when he was five years old. By 14, he was performing in nightclubs, loving it. And I mean, I used to have him jumping all on top of the tables, you know? This was also when Ernest wrote and recorded his very first song about a girl he used to like. This is 14-year-old Ernest. 14, yeah, 14. And Ernest did have a real hit song once. He did a cover of an Al Green song that actually got on the official Billboard charts. So if you ever heard this song on an old jukebox, chances are you heard Ernest's cover, not Al Green's. But Ernest only got paid $150 one time for it. He spent 33 years waiting tables at nice restaurants, still singing wherever he could. Yeah, I was known as the serenading waiter. I made a very good living. I, I raised all my children and my family. We, we did pretty good at that time. He became a grandpa and a great-grandpa and retired. And we became a record label to see if we could give Ernest a little taste of what he'd always dreamed of, a little bit of fame. And his song did get listened to all over the world, Nigeria, Brazil, Norway, Japan. And releasing his inflation song led to some new opportunities for Ernest. The animated TV show Bob's Burgers cast Ernest Jackson as the voice of a singer from the 70s. Ernest got to go back into a recording studio, which is what he really, really wanted, to record a new song called Gas in My Car. On December 6th, a couple weeks after this song and TV episode came out, Ernest Jackson passed away unexpectedly. He was 75. One of his kids, Corey, called to tell us. The most thing I'm going to miss about my dad is, is his smile. You know, he had a smile that could light up a room. He really did. And it was such an honor for us to be a part of Ernest Jackson's final years. Oh, man, he was in such good spirits, man. He was so happy about that. And um, he would not stop playing inflation. We will leave you the way we know Ernest Jackson would like to go out. Singing. This is his take on one of his favorite songs. Oh, it's been a long, a long time coming. But I knew a change had to come. Oh, yes, it did. Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography, Kauffman.org. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. What snow fell today mostly came down south of Boston and on Cape Cod. Just an inch or two, but enough to make for icy roads, so be careful out there. Tonight, temperatures drop to the teens, but the wind should make it feel bitterly cold. Tomorrow, cloudy, maybe some snow flurries in the teens and low 20s. Then for Sunday, sunny and still pretty cold. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Democrats in Congress are calling for the IRS to scrutinize a nonprofit group that supports defendants on January 6th. The group has close ties to the Trump campaign, and that's brought up legal questions. A 501c3 organization is telling people to vote for this candidate. That clearly cuts against the letter of the law. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, final campaign arguments and spending on advertising in New Hampshire ahead of Tuesday's primary. The Granite State has been devastated by opioid addiction. We'll take a look at Republicans' response to the crisis, which is largely focused on cutting off the supply of illegal drugs. In Puerto Rico, why solidarity with the cause of Palestinians runs so deep. And Sports Illustrated has announced the layoffs of a significant amount, if not all, of the News Guild represented workers. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he's told the U.S. he opposes a Palestinian state that puts him in direct conflict with the Biden administration. Biden has long had a deep connection with Israel, but as NPR's Asma Khalid reports, his views are being put to the test now by the politics in the region and within his own party. Delaware Senator Chris Coons is co-chair of Biden's re-election bid. He points out the president's support for Israel has largely reflected the majority of the American public. Bakuns also recognizes that a growing number of Democrats are alarmed at civilian casualties in Gaza. He expects the conflict on the ground to change soon. More humanitarian aid, less intense fighting. And significant movement towards regional reconciliation and regional peace. If that's not possible, if that doesn't happen over the next couple of months, I do think that there's segments of the Democratic base that will be more and more concerned and disenchanted. Either way, Biden has to navigate Netanyahu and the fractures in his own base in an election year. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Another indictment for actor Alec Baldwin in connection with a fatal shooting during a rehearsal on a New Mexico movie set in 2021. Special prosecutors brought the case before a grand jury in Santa Fe this week, months after receiving a new analysis of the gun. Baldwin, the lead actor and co-producer of the Western Rust, was pointing the gun at a cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, when it went off killing her and wounding a director. Baldwin has said he was told the gun did not contain live rounds. He's also denied pulling the trigger. Initial charges against Baldwin were dismissed, but the latest indictment revives the case against the 65-year-old actor. 
The housing market had its slowest year in a long time last year. As NPR's Chris Arnold explains, high interest rates and high prices pushed overall sales down to the lowest levels since 1995. It's been nearly 30 years since so few homes were sold across the U.S. The biggest culprit has been much higher mortgage rates, up near 8% just back in November. The jump in interest rates that we saw last year, uh, really a shock to the system. Jessica Louts with the National Association of Realtors says a severe housing shortage also pushed prices up to a new record. Builders just haven't been able to meet demand. Home builders are being impacted by the jump in interest rates as well. They have to borrow to build and it's become very expensive for them to do so. Still, she says realtors are more optimistic about this year because rates have now been falling. Chris Arnold, NPR News. President Biden has signed the stopgap spending bill passed yesterday by the House and Senate, the measure averting a looming partial government shutdown, keeping federal agencies funded through early March. On Wall Street, stocks returned to their record highs today. The Dow up 395 points. The S&P 500 gained 58 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Schools in Newton were closed today as the city's 2,000 educators went on strike. Enough is enough! Enough is enough! As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, Newton is the largest and most affluent district to see a strike of this kind in recent years. In terms of tax revenue, Newton ranks eighth among Massachusetts communities. Meanwhile, the union says many aides in Newton schools earn roughly a quarter of the city's average annual income. David Bedar, a union official and history teacher at Newton North High School, says the strike is focused on that inequity. A city like this should be able to afford to have social workers in elementary schools when even young kids are struggling with mental health. What, what are we doing if we're not willing to fully fund the schools and take care of them. Newton Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller noted Friday that teacher strikes are illegal under state law. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. No word yet on whether schools will be open on Monday in Newton. Lawyers for Harvard Medical School say they should be immune from lawsuits related to the thefts of donor body parts from the medical school's morgue. They argued their case today before a judge in Suffolk Superior Court in Boston. WBR's Ali Jarmanning has more. Harvard says former morgue manager Cedric Lodge acted alone when he stole and sold body parts. In court, attorney Martin Murphy argued there was no bad faith by the institution. And he said there's no evidence that... That this was part of his job to be selling individuals' parts on the open market. There's no allegation in the complaint that was part of his job. Attorneys for the families say they want the case to move forward so they can begin collecting evidence as to what Harvard knew about Lodge. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Snow and ice across the country are creating problems at Logan Airport. More than 250 flights have been delayed today. The airline tracker FlightAware reports 40 cancellations. The FAA says flights into New York City's major airports are experiencing delays. The snow that fell mainly on Boston's South Shore and on Cape Cod, just a couple of inches worth, are making things pretty slick on some of the highways around, so be careful if you're out there. Overnight tonight should be cold down around the teens. Then for tomorrow, clouds through much of the day. Temperatures in the low 20s and also down in the teens when the wind blows it should feel a lot colder. And then for Sunday, clouds clear out, sunshine comes in, temperatures in the upper 20s. 25 now in Boston at 5.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Republican presidential candidates are making their final pitches to New Hampshire voters. That primary is on Tuesday, and the stakes are high. And in addition to campaigning on the ground and meeting voters, the candidates and the groups supporting them are flooding the airwaves in the Granite State. Here to tell us about what they're saying and just how much money is being spent there is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So, Domenico, just a few days to go until the primary. What are New Hampshire voters hearing from the candidates? Well, New Hampshire could be Nikki Haley's last stand. So this is vitally important to her. The super PAC supporting her is dominating the airwaves, and it's turning to Chris Sununu, who's the popular Republican New Hampshire governor, and he's endorsed her. There are now only two candidates who can win. One is surrounded by chaos and drama. That's the Donald Trump we all know. The other is honest and hopeful. That's Nikki Haley. You know, we also know independents are a huge factor in New Hampshire, and there's a new group that's popped up supporting Haley, independents moving the needle, spending about a million dollars on ads just in the last few days featuring people from around the state and why they're for her. That seems like a big chunk of cash in just a couple days. How much are we seeing spent in New Hampshire overall? I mean, in total, in the past year, it's been $76 million. Nine million of that, though, has been just in the past week. Uh, Most of it is from pro-Haley groups, the rest from Trump and his allies. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, not on the air at all anywhere. Huh. Makes it seem like there's a two-person race in New Hampshire based on that. So, Domenico, if pro-Trump groups are the only other ones on the air there, what are they telling voters? The Trump campaign and super PAC supporting him are continuing to hit Haley on immigration and on Social Security. Here's part of one ad on Social Security quoting Haley. We say the rules have changed. We change retirement age to reflect life expectancy. What we do know is 65 is way too low, and we need to increase that. that. Haley's plan cuts Social Security benefits for 82% of Americans. Trump will never let that happen. The Trump campaign is spending almost a million dollars on that ad, and clearly this is part of his closing message. Domenica, we've been talking a whole lot about Republicans. I want to shift our focus now to Democrats. They don't have a primary that counts in New Hampshire this year, but you say there are millions of dollars being spent on TV ads for that race, too? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Democrats demoted New Hampshire this year, stripped them of their delegates to the national convention because President Biden wanted to promote South Carolina, the state that propelled him to the nomination in 2020. But Dean Phillips, a Minnesota congressman who decided to challenge Biden, is using Biden's absence in New Hampshire as an opportunity. And he's employed, I'm not kidding here, Bigfoot. I'm something of an expert on elusive creatures. So I challenged myself to find President Biden in New Hampshire during this primary season. I thought I was good at hiding. So I asked around, have you seen Joe? So there it is. Dean Phillips has found Bigfoot, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) This is just one way that Phillips has really been trying to get attention. He and a group of supporting him have spent roughly $5 million on a contest that doesn't count. It's really pretty remarkable. You know, Biden's not officially on the ballot in New Hampshire, but there is a writing campaign that's very active for him. Right now, that writing campaign is leading Phillips in the polls. Certainly, though, if Phillips were to win in New Hampshire, it would be a pretty bad black eye for Biden and the White House knows he can't afford that. Was not expecting to talk about Bigfoot today, but NPR's Domenico (laughs) Montanaro brought it in. Thank you so much. Big news. Big news. He's out there.
<laughs> Former President Trump has embraced defendants charged in the January 6th insurrection. And the Trump re-election campaign has developed close ties with a nonprofit that provides financial support to January 6th defendants. As NPR's Tom Dreisbach reports, members of Congress are calling for the IRS to take a close look at whether that group's activities violate federal law. Donald Trump's political operation first featured this group at a rally in 2022. With the Patriot Freedom Project, what a job they do. Where are you? Where are you? Stand up. What a job. The Patriot Freedom Project provides financial help to January 6th defendants and describes them as, quote, political prisoners. The group is organized as a charity under Section 501c3 of the tax code. That means they don't have to pay certain state and federal taxes, and their donors can deduct their contributions to the group at tax time. Those benefits have helped the Patriot Freedom Project raise more than $2 million, including $10,000 from Trump's political action committee. But under federal law, those benefits come with an absolute restriction. The group cannot legally get involved in political campaigns by directly or even indirectly supporting or opposing candidates. So it raised questions when the group held a fundraiser at a Trump golf club last summer, and the group's leader, Cynthia Hughes, stood next to Trump and said this. When you go to the ballot box, don't worry about what you hear in the media. Worry about what's right for this country. And the only thing that's right for this country is this gem. The gem Hughes was referring to was Trump, and she then gave him a hug. And NPR found other Patriot Freedom Project events where speakers promoted the Trump campaign. Congressman Jamie Raskin is a Maryland Democrat and served on the January 6th Select Committee in Congress. I'm certainly alarmed to learn that a 501c3 organization is sending out direct political advocacy meaning messages telling people to vote for this candidate or to vote against that candidate. That clearly cuts against the letter of the law. Congressman Bill Pasquale, a New Jersey Democrat, told NPR that the IRS should, quote, immediately open an investigation. If the IRS does find that the group violated the law, they can revoke its tax-exempt status and impose tax penalties. The Patriot Freedom Project did not respond to NPR's request for comment. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. As Israel continues its bombardment of Gaza more than three months after Hamas' October 7th terrorist attack, sympathy for Palestinians is growing worldwide. One place where the Palestinian cause has long had a well of support is in the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. That's because of their shared colonial histories, as NPR's Adrian Florido reports. Puerto Ricans have been marching against Israel's bombardment of Gaza almost every week since it started. At a recent protest in the capital, San Juan, Ariana González-Pelaez said that as a Puerto Rican, she feels deep kinship with Palestinians. Our similarities are very striking, and I feel very called to be here today. Puerto Rico is a United States territory, but González is among the many Puerto Ricans who consider her home in the Caribbean a colony controlled by the U.S., much, she says, like the Palestinian territories of Gaza and the West Bank are controlled by Israel. I guess in terms of the violence that's going on, it is not comparable at all, but it is a result of imperialism. So as Puerto Ricans who have suffered the consequences of colonialism, we should and should always be standing with other colonized nations around the world, including Gaza and Palestine right now. The U.S. military invaded and took control of Puerto Rico, then a Spanish colony, in 1898. To this day, it has only limited self-government. 
Though Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, many say they're second-class citizens and have long fought for greater self-determination. Yerimar Bonilla, a Princeton political anthropologist from Puerto Rico, says that is key to understanding their sympathy for the Palestinian cause. They see a resonance with a population that is struggling to find sovereignty, struggling against an empire that doesn't recognize itself as such. In the mid-20th century, the U.S.-appointed colonial government violently suppressed nationalist movements and outlawed even speaking of independence from the U.S. There was a literal gag law that didn't allow people to fly the Puerto Rican flag. It's a lot of parallelisms with Palestinians whose flags were also banned and had to turn to other symbols like watermelons as like symbols of a, of a people and of a national desire. Like in much of the world, opinion over the Israel-Palestine conflict is split in Puerto Rico. There have been a few demonstrations on the island supporting Israel. There's definitely a diversity of opinions as there is everywhere. But there is a particular historical context that creates a kind of openness to, to understand and learn more about the Palestinian struggle and to imagine it as something that resonates with our own history. On a recent morning, I met Natalia Ibrahim Abufara Davila in front of a large new mural on the site of an abandoned building in San Juan. It's a mural that says, De las ruinas nacerán miles de semillas y será libre Puerto Rico y Palestina. Which in translation is, from the ruins, thousands of seeds are going to be born and Puerto Rico and Palestina will become free. Ibrahim Abufara's mother is Puerto Rican. Her father is Palestinian. She's one of many activists who since October 7th has been organizing public forums to educate Puerto Ricans, she says, about all they have in common with Palestinians. She's been focusing a lot on a big and growing concern in Puerto Rico, displacement. Hundreds of thousands of people have left Puerto Rico in recent years, pushed by the territory's economic crisis to migrate to the states. The mass exodus of Puerto Ricans, it's overwhelming. And you see the abandonment in the communities. You see also the dispossession of land, the resources. Many people feel the problem's been made worse by a congressionally appointed financial control board that has slashed public budgets, and by a growing wave of wealthy transplants who've been lured by the promise of tax breaks and have been buying up property. What the government calls necessary policies to revive the economy, Ibrahim Abufara and other critics have been calling government-aided settler colonialism, outsiders being ushered in and poor Puerto Ricans being forced out. It's working really, really fast, and it feels very violent. She acknowledges it is not the same as the displacement by Israeli bombs that Palestinians are facing right now. But one way that Puerto Ricans have been able to relate is that they, like Palestinians, are struggling to stay on their land. Libre Puerto Rico, libre Palestina, y libre todos los pueblos colonizados y oprimidos. Ibrahim Abufara often links those struggles when she speaks at protests. At this one, she was surrounded by people waving the flags of both Puerto Rico and Palestine. Adrian Florido, NPR News, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
And you're listening to All Things Considered here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Nikki Haley is hoping for a big day in New Hampshire's primary Tuesday. But if she's going to catch up with former President Donald Trump, she'll need the support of voters who previously backed Chris Christie. Can she get it? Our story is coming up in about 20 minutes. Some significant gains on Wall Street today. The Dow pulled in more than 1 percent. S&P jumped to an all-time high today as it rose to nearly one and a quarter, rose nearly one and a quarter percent. The Nasdaq grew by nearly one and three quarters percent. Boston-based retailer Wayfair says it's laying off more than 1,600 workers. That's 13 percent of its workforce. In a letter to employees today, Wayfair CEO Naraj Shah said the company did well at the start of the pandemic and then went overboard with corporate hiring. The cuts will affect more than 900 employees at its Boston headquarters, including some who work remotely. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org, and Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car scrub-a-dub clean anytime you want. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Meteorologist Danielle Noy says some of the coldest air of the season is moving in. Until then, some areas of snow in the south shore to Cape Cod will taper off through the evening hours. Not much accumulation, but scattered coatings to an inch or so around the canal and as much as two to three inches on Cape Cod. So be mindful of some slick spots out there tonight. We'll drop into the teens overnight. Wind chill values dip to around zero. Tomorrow will be cloudy with some ocean effect snow showers on the outer Cape. We won't get out of the teens and low 20s for highs tomorrow. Wind gusts occasionally over 20 will add that bite to the air. Wind chill values only in the single digits. The sun's back on Sunday. Highs in the upper 20s, still breezy, so it'll feel like the teens at the warmest time of the day. The mid-20s right now, 25 degrees in Boston at 521. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Sunday marks the one-year anniversary of one of California's deadliest mass shootings. A gunman attacked a ballroom dance studio in Monterey Park, an Asian-majority city several miles east of Los Angeles, many of whom are from Taiwan, China, Thailand, and Vietnam. Josie Huang of member station LAist follows up on their year of recovery. On the night of January 21st, a gunman named Hu Can Tran showed up at the Stardance Ballroom studio and fired on a crowd celebrating the Lunar New Year. Lloyd Gock sought cover as his friends fell around him. I was about 10 feet away from the shooter. I just hide under the table. So the bullet just went by me. But the gunman wasn't done. He drove a few miles to Alhambra, where there was another popular ballroom called Lai Lai. It was kind of a sister studio that the same crowd frequented. Brandon Tsai, whose family owns the studio, was closing up when he saw the shooter enter the lobby with a gun. Within the first three seconds, I processed that I must do something to save everybody's lives. Ty wrestled the gun away from the shooter who took off. 
Tran was found dead the next day of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He'd been part of the local ballroom dance scene, but police still have not specified a motive. As the community held vigils and politicians called for stricter gun control in the wake of the shooting, survivors found solace in one another. Lloyd Gox says a group of about 40 of them messaged over WeChat and shared meals and tears. Because our life is never the same, never the same since that day. The Stardance Ballroom Studio, where the shooting took place, closed permanently. The local dance community had been so traumatized that Brandon Tsai didn't think they'd come back and dance at Lai Lai. Some instructors have left, taking students with them. But Tai says most folks have returned. I was so glad that they came back with a big smile on their faces. And that in itself was therapy because just getting connected to one another again at a physical location and recounting the situation, it was quite therapeutic for everybody. Tai says he wants the dance studio to continue to be a place of healing. As the shooting's anniversary approached, Lilai hosted a community event where they offered free dance lessons. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Relax your hips. Tai also invited mental health clinicians to that event. Among them, Sheila Wu, who directs mental health centers in L.A. County catering to the Asian community. For people to come back to the location of what happened, I think it will trigger certain emotions on, in some. But Wu says the event also provided a chance to offer counseling to an older immigrant crowd that's resistant to seeking help. She says that for many immigrants, there's this mentality of, we have to be strong, we have to be resilient, and we cannot be weak because we have to succeed, right? Some survivors, like Lloyd Gawk, have been receptive to counseling, but he says what has helped him cope with his trauma the most has been returning to the dance floor. Pretty much you don't have to think about anything, you know? You just concentrate on the next turn with your partner. All your worries goes away for that, you know, few minutes that you're dancing. Gawk approaches fellow survivor Hattie Pang, who's wearing a flowy mini skirt and sparkly headband. She started dancing again a few months after the shooting. She's now back to coaxing friends to dance the waltz, her favorite. Lila Lila, she says in Mandarin, meaning come, come. Same words as the name of the studio. And Gok does. Peng takes his hand and they dip and weave across the floor. For NPR News, I'm Josie Huang in Alhambra. Next week, New Hampshire holds its presidential primaries. It's a state that has been devastated by opioid addiction. President Biden is not campaigning in the state because of rule changes for the Democratic primary calendar. So his views on this topic have been largely absent from the campaign trail. But Republicans have been talking about it a lot. And their response to the crisis has largely focused on cutting off the supply of illegal drugs. We go and we say to them, we're going to end normal trade relations with you until you stop killing Americans. If you give the death penalty to drug dealers, you will have no more problems. We're going to shoot them stone cold dead right at that southern border. That was former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former President Donald Trump, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Some New Hampshire residents say the candidates aren't talking enough about treatment and recovery. We're joined now by Paul Kuno Booth with New Hampshire Public Radio. Hi, Paul. Hi, Juana. Paul, so all eyes are on the state of New Hampshire ahead of next week's primaries, and we just heard a snippet of what Republican candidates have been saying across the state. Tell us a bit about what you've been hearing. 
Yeah, so they often bring up fentanyl when talking about the southern border, linking the issue to fears about unauthorized immigration. Now, I should note, federal immigration officials say the vast majority of drugs coming over the border are actually being smuggled through legal points of entry, mostly by U.S. citizens and other legal residents, not by migrants crossing without authorization. Nikki Haley has also called for putting more pressure on China, which is a major source of the chemicals used to make fentanyl. But people like Teresa Gladstone, who lives in Concord, New Hampshire, say they want to hear more about how the candidates plan to help people experiencing addiction. I think they're just throwing stuff out there to try to appease people at this point. And that's not what we need. We need somebody that really is taking it seriously and and has sat down and thought about a plan. She lost her grandson to an overdose in 2020, and she now says she wants to hear more about things like expanding access to treatment and preventing people from dying of overdoses. Paul, as we were just hearing from Teresa Gladstone, this is a personal issue for so many people. Are any of the candidates speaking to those very personal concerns? Well, Haley did visit a treatment center this week to talk more about investments in recovery and mental health. But the issue still seems to be getting a lot less attention than it did in 2016. That was the last time we had a lot of uh, Republican presidential candidates campaigning here. And, you know, several of them spoke really personally about family members who'd been uh, struggling with addiction and, and sort of put forward more detailed plans to address the issue. I know from spending time in the state that New Hampshire was hit hard by the opioid crisis early on, but I'm curious, how is it impacting the state today? Well, it continues to have a huge impact here. You know, drug overdose deaths had started to go down before the pandemic, but they've since gone up again, and we're losing more than 400 people every year to this. That's a lot for a small state like New Hampshire. Access to treatment has gotten better over time, but some people are still struggling to get the help they need. Um, That can be especially true in rural areas where someone might be 30 minutes or an hour from the nearest treatment provider or recovery center. For people who have been affected by this issue in New Hampshire, as you've been talking to them, how are they feeling about what the candidates have been saying? Well, I, I spoke to a couple advocates who've lost loved ones to drug overdoses. For the most part, they say this issue isn't getting the attention it needs, and they'd like the candidates to offer more comprehensive solutions. One of them is Doug Griffin from Newton, New Hampshire. He says the candidates talk a lot about the supply of drugs coming from outside the country, but they're not really addressing the reasons people here at home are turning to drugs in the first place. The whole issue starts with mental health and and prevention, and we we could stop this problem if we were to address it at an early age. Griffin's daughter, Courtney, died of an overdose when she was 20, and he's saying there, we really need to focus on intervening early in young people's lives so they don't turn to substance use in the first place. That's New Hampshire Public Radio's Paul Kuno Booth. Paul, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. NPR's immigration reporter recently took a flight from San Diego to New York. She sat next to a young man from Ecuador who told her the story of his long journey to the U.S. We'll hear it in about 20 minutes on WBUR. And about six minutes away, Sports Illustrated faces an uncertain future with major layoffs. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. With over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries, Free admission every day, 
Open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. It's a role Clive Owen always coveted, and yet when it came... I've been duped. I don't get the hat, I don't get the coat, I don't get the gun, I have to give up smoking, like, oh, I want to play Sam Spade. Well, what is this? The legendary detective, older, wiser, and living in France, Monsieur Spade. And all the latest news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Post to social media claim the Israeli military has exhumed bodies from a graveyard in Gaza. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on the allegations. Videos posted to social media show extensive damage at the main graveyard of the city of Khan Yunus in southern Gaza. Bulldozer tracks are visible, as are broken gravestones and open graves. The Israeli military did not comment directly on the incident. But in a statement responding to the allegations, it says it does conduct operations to recover the bodies of hostages when it has, quote, critical intelligence about where they are. In such cases, it says it removes any remains thought to be hostages to conduct forensic analysis. The military said it would return any bodies if it found they were not hostages. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. A Boeing 747 cargo plane made an emergency landing in Miami late last night after suffering an engine fire. NPR's Joel Rose tells us the plane returned to the airport safely shortly after takeoff. The Atlas Air flight was headed to Puerto Rico from Miami International Airport with five crew members on board when it was forced to return to Miami because of an engine fire. A widely shared video on social media shows flames shooting out of the left wing of the aircraft while in flight. The Boeing 747 was operated by Atlas Air, which carries freight for delivery companies including DHL and FedEx. The Federal Aviation Administration says a post-flight inspection showed a softball-sized hole above the engine. The FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board are investigating. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. Sales of existing homes fell by 1% last month, capping off the slowest year for home sales in nearly three decades. Overall, though, home sales were down nearly 19% last year as rising mortgage rates put homes out of reach for many. On the upside, mortgage rates have now fallen to their lowest level in nearly eight months. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy unveiled a plan today that would allow Massachusetts cities and towns to increase local meals and lodging taxes, as well as motor vehicle excise taxes. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports her proposal is getting mixed reviews. Municipalities generate the bulk of their tax revenue from property taxes. Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation President Doug Howgate supports taking some of that burden away from homeowners. The idea of enabling municipalities to diversify some of their revenue sources to areas like uh, consumption that occurs in their town or people who are uh, staying at hotels and lodging makes sense. But Massachusetts Restaurant Association President Stephen Clark is concerned about raising the meals tax. The local option meals tax is one of the few taxes that's already subject to inflation because menu prices go up every year, so the meals tax always goes up. Clark says the tax increase would cost consumers an additional $15 million. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. State labor officials say Massachusetts added nearly 14,000 jobs last month. Despite that, the report that they released today shows the unemployment rate ticked up three-tenths of a percentage point to 3.2 percent. Secretary of Labor and Workforce Development Lauren Jones says the uptick is because more people entered the job market last month than at any other time in the past two years. 
We want to make sure that people are returning to the labor market because as more people return to the labor market, it shows that we're attracting and hopefully also retaining um, people in our workforce. The state's unemployment rate is still well below the national rate. Massachusetts Senators Markey and Warren, along with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, are calling on Walgreens to keep its store in Roxbury open. Lawmakers tell the company's CEO that the Roxbury closing is part of a pattern of Walgreens closing its stores in predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods. Walgreens says its Roxbury store customers will have its prescriptions transferred to one of its other stores one mile away. The company says it's also waiving delivery fees on some prescriptions. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com and Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu. Cold temperatures making for slick roadways, so be careful out there. Down to the teens overnight tonight with some bitterly cold winds. Tomorrow heavy on the clouds, still windy and cold, right about 20 tops. Sunday could make it to a balmy 27 degrees with sunshine. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Sports Illustrated was once the pinnacle of sports journalism, and now its future is uncertain. This afternoon, magazine staffers were told to expect massive layoffs. Like most magazines, Sports Illustrated has had a tough time with declining readership and new owners. A.J. Perez has been reporting on this for Front Office Sports. Hi there. Hello. Thanks for having me. So you're welcome. It's good to have you here. Today's announcement of layoffs comes after a missed payment. Explain what happened. Yes. So um, Sports Illustrated is owned by Authentic Brands, uh, which is a licensing company. They own Reebok and a lot of other brands. Um, but back in right after they bought it in 2019, uh, from for about 100 million dollars, they uh, sold the, the licensing rights to a company called Maven. Um, $45 million, Maven had to pay up front along with annual fees uh, going forward as part of a 10-year contract. Maven morphed into uh, the Arena Group a couple of years ago, um, and now uh, the Arena Group is basically, well, it's mostly owned by uh, Manoj uh, Bargava. He's the uh, founder of 5-Hour Energy, and since uh, since August, he's been building up more and more equity in the company by p- purchasing um, outstanding shares. And also, he acquired a lot of the debt. Now, uh, during that time, uh, he, you know, during this time, he's not, he was, according to at the SEC filings, he's not fully in control, but he was the interim CEO for a few weeks uh, back in December through uh, early January. And uh, during that time, he, he had a very wild introduction to his staff during a town hall uh, of SI and at the other brands of Arena. And the other brands of Arena are, are uh, like the street and men's but, but but to the specific uh, missed payment that triggered yes. the layoffs, um, that was the initiating event. And how yes, many staffers it is it likely to affect? 
It's going to be it now that led to today. Uh, well, this that was disclosed today that uh, that authentic has triggered the termination clause in the in, in, in the deal. And as part of that, they can get those rights back. And Arena is on the hook for a forty five million dollar payment on top of that. This is all the while, um, you know, there's still there's other there's there's people talking to authentic about acquiring the SI uh, IP. And and really, this could also be um the the arena groups uh kind of move towards trying to renegotiate uh the fees on for what's left on the contract any sense of the number of layoffs we're likely to see um well basically what we found out today was within 90 days it could be everybody, everybody. Um, and that's really that authentic has put has authentic is we had sources saying uh before this and they they put out a statement that that's not going to happen they're gonna they're they're not going to let this brand die what's the so reaction been is, from the union uh, it was Swift and uh, and uh, yeah, they were they're 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 pushing back, and that's why those the those uh, employees covered under the union contract have ninety days. There's a ninety basically ninety day window where this could get, this this could get cured, this could get fixed. Whether that means authentic coming in and operating it themselves, finding another company, or renegotiating with Arena to at at, at a lower rate. But, so th- there's going to be, but there's still going to be many, many layoffs. But even the best case scenario here seems like such a far cry from the golden age of sports journalism that this magazine was known for. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, it's, it. when I was a kid, uh, it was, it, it was, it's like a lot of brands have changed. Did they stop doing, many years ago, they stopped doing the print edition um, and outside of the swimsuit edition. So it, it's it just the change of media, old media, and uh, another billionaire saver came in and made a bunch of cuts. That's basically what we have here. AJ Perez is a senior reporter for Front Office Sports. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is hoping for a big day in next week's New Hampshire primary. But if she is going to catch up to former President Donald Trump, she will need the support of voters who previously backed Chris Christie. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith caught up with some of the former New Jersey governor's supporters. Katherine Johnson was a Chris Christie super volunteer, fashioning herself a role that was basically a Walmart greeter, but for town halls and candidate meet and greets. She logged so many miles along the way. I'm thinking about 5,000 since October. And so, of course, she was there when Christie announced he was suspending his campaign. She was supposed to be manning the mic that night for the question and answer portion of the event. And at the very last second, they had me sit down. There would be no more of Christie's trademark Q&A. Johnson really believed in Christie and loved his willingness to stand up to Trump. She is a registered Democrat and knows it's kind of weird to be so dedicated to a Republican candidate. But she cried right there at the town hall. I knew the campaign was going to come to an end on January 23rd, but I still thought I had two weeks. Most of the supporters we talked to thought Christie would drop out after the New Hampshire primary on the 23rd. Norm Olson had hosted a meet and greet with Christie at his home in Portsmouth shortly before Christmas and appreciated that he was the only Republican in the race willing to say what he felt needed to be said about Trump. Olson is a Republican, but he never could stomach a vote for Trump. He went libertarian in the last two elections. Now, with his candidate out, he immediately knew who would get his vote. It was very clear. If, if, if it wasn't him, it was going to be Nikki. Christie pointedly didn't endorse anyone when he dropped out. In fact, he was critical of Haley for saying that if Trump is the nominee, she would support him, even if he's convicted of a crime. But Christie leaving the race is widely seen as a boon for Haley, who benefits from New Hampshire allowing independents to vote in the Republican primary. 
Olson says his Christie-backing friends have largely shifted to Haley. Well, out of 10 people that I know, eight of them were about as quick as I was to go to Nikki, and two of them haven't made up their mind yet. That's just the folks I know, so this is obviously not a scientific study. But a more scientific University of New Hampshire poll taken before Christie dropped out found that 65% of Christie voters had Haley as their second choice. Don Hartnett, an IT project manager from Hooksett, is one of them. She's an independent who has never voted for a Republican at the national level, but that's about to change. She says she can't stand the chaos of Trump, and after Christie dropped out, she attended a Haley event. She is our last best chance, but a very good, a good person to vote for. I think she'd do a great job. Retired nurse Corinne Pryor is still in the undecided category. She liked that Christie spoke his mind about Trump's Republican Party. Nikki Haley sometimes said it, but not in so many words. It did feel like it was a little softer landing. He was, Chris Christie was um, much more verbal and forthright. But what she really craves is someone moderate, someone to bring the country together. Well, she's, she's more in the middle than Trump is, I think. You know, if I have to compare, it depends who I'm comparing her to, I guess. As for Christie super volunteer Katherine Johnson, she's now attending Haley events, including the one in Hooksett, where I caught up with her. But come Tuesday... I'm going to vote for Governor Christie on a write-in ticket for the Democratic New Hampshire primary, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the day driving anybody who needs a ride to the poll. Starting with her 91-year-old mother. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Manchester, New Hampshire. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been nearly three years since the coup in Myanmar that plunged the country into civil war, one that's left some two million people displaced. The fighting pits a brutal military against ethnic armed groups and post-coup resistance forces. And the military is struggling. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports from neighboring Thailand. In late October, the so-called Three Brotherhood Alliance began a surprise offensive against the military in northern Shan State along the border with China. It was wildly successful and continued into the new year. Earlier this month came perhaps the biggest prize yet, the capture of the city of Laokai and the surrender of the military garrison there, along with its heavy weapons and ammunition gleefully displayed on social media by the victorious rebels. It was a stunning and unprecedented defeat. This is the largest surrender in the military's history. 2,389 troops just outright surrendering to the Brotherhood. Jason Tower is the Myanmar country director for the United States Institute of Peace. He says the military is slowly bleeding out, which might help explain why, at China's urging, it agreed to a temporary ceasefire with the Brotherhood at talks in southern China last week. 
I don't really see how they're going to turn this around. I mean, troop morale is at an all-time low, and all across the rest of the country, fighting continues, and you're not really seeing the military make any progress in the fronts to the west, the south, the southeast, uh, etc. And all of this has some analysts predicting the military's imminent demise. David Matheson is not one of them. The military is definitely on the back foot. It's definitely hurting. But if this signals the end, that's not very clear. We don't know when the end will be. But dissension within the military is growing, aimed largely at Senior General Min Ong Lang and his handling of the war effort, says Min Zhao of the Myanmar Institute for Peace and Security. I talked to a few battalion commanders and their counterparts, and they are very loyal to the military as an institution, but uh, they are dissatisfied with the leadership. There are a lot of this sentiment from the battalion commander who consider that the leadership failed them. But it's still an institution that believes only it can maintain the unity of the country at whatever cost, and has proven this in its brutal campaigns against ethnic minority militias over the years and against its own ethnic Burman majority since the coup. That's unlikely to change, says David Matheson, even if Minong Lung is replaced. And if they are being pushed with their backs to the wall, then basically it's going to be scorched earth everywhere that they go. And the evidence is the past three years. And even if the military does fall, he says, what then? I think that there is a distorted analysis that presumes there is a lot more unity between all of the different armed groups and a unanimity of goals and, and aspirations. The only thing they all agree on, he says, is that the military has to go. The political vision of, of a lot of the groups behind Operation 1027, the Kokang and the, and the Ta'ang, they're pretty much limited to Shan State and the border with China. They don't necessarily have a national Myanmar vision. And that's what I think people have to contend with. There's a lot less unity than some people are trying to propound. But there is momentum. Just this week, one of the more powerful ethnic militias seized a major township in the west of the country, bordering India and Bangladesh. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Chiang Rai. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Cold temperatures have settled in for a while. Here's WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Some pockets of snow this evening south of Boston, mainly on the South Shore and Cape will taper off, according to an inch or two, fairly fluffy, easy to move around, but some slippery travel there, so use caution. Temperatures drop from the 20s into the teens tonight. Wind chill in the single digits, both above and below zero. Tomorrow, cloudy with ocean effect snow showers possible in the outer Cape, especially could see a quick inch or two in spots. Highs only around 20 wind chill in the single digits for many. Brighter on Sunday and not quite as cold will be in the upper 20s. Wind gusts occasionally over 20 make it feel like the teens. In the Boston area now, 25 degrees at 549. On last week's Wait Wait, it became clear that the rules of our games are somewhat flexible. Like roaches. I'm going to give it to you, wolf spiders. Oh. Wait, what? I'm Peter Sagal. We'll probably bend over backwards to make sure actor David Oyelowo wins our game. I mean, he played MLK. Join us for the news quiz that plays it loose. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
Gas prices are down, stock prices are up, and Americans are starting to take notice. Public sentiment on the economy has jumped sharply in the past two months. What's fueling these shifts? Tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR, start your weekend right here. It is 25 degrees in Boston. The time is 5.50. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. So, Ari, when you get on a plane, do you like to put on your headphones, close your eyes, and zone out? Or are you more of the kind of person who likes to introduce yourself to the person sitting next to you and strike up a conversation? Oh, I would never. I mean, if I'm going to fall asleep and drool on myself on an airplane, I don't want the person sitting next to me to go home and say they saw the host of All Things Considered with drool on his shirt. I could not agree more. I just want to sleep. But let me tell you about someone who does not agree with us, and that is NPR's immigration correspondent, Jasmine Garst. She recently got on a plane and she she found a story sitting right next to her. About a month ago, she was on a plane coming back from a reporting trip in California, and she took her seat, and it was next to a young man from Ecuador who told her the story of how he got to America. She brings us this reporter's notebook. He had big black eyes and braces, and despite being 22, an adolescent sheepishness. Ramon. I won't use his full name because he's worried about repercussions for his family from the people who financed his trip. Excuse me, he said, tapping me hesitantly in Spanish. I haven't really flown a lot. Would you mind recording a video out the window? I myself am very scared of flying, by the way. In fact, he caught me just as I searched for the prescription medication I take to calm my nerves. My arm was still deep in my back, searching for the pills as I answered, yeah, no problem. I thought not. I decided I would knock myself out later. I put my phone up against the window and started recording. Do you fly a lot? He asked. I noticed his voice had a boyish crackle to it. Yeah, I told him. I don't love it. Ramon told me this was actually his second time flying. The first had just been a few weeks ago, a short trip from Ecuador to El Salvador. He told me he'd crossed the border into the U.S. two days ago. Border Patrol had apprehended him, processed him, and let him go with a notice to appear in immigration court in a few months. I wondered where he was going to stay once we landed. He was going to go be with his cousins in New York. Do you have a jacket? I asked. He said he did, and then pointed to the hoodie he was wearing. I looked out the window at the San Diego palm trees and thought about how bitingly cold New York City is in December. I turned back to him. He looked terrified. If you want, I told him, I can hold your hand. He smiled and grabbed my hand as the plane started speeding down the runway. Thousands of feet down below, I could see the desert. I'd been there just a few days ago, reporting for NPR. Ramon leaned in over my shoulder and looked out. He told me that looked like the desert he crossed at the end of a 21-day journey, mostly on foot, from El Salvador to the U.S. border. 
He said it like even he couldn't believe it. I've heard so many stories like this in the last year from people on the border who've traveled for days and months, mostly on foot, to come to the U.S. In their mouths, places like Daly City, California, or Manassas, Virginia, sound like Xanadu or El Dorado. A lot of them will get an immigration court date. Ramon's court date is in March. As an immigration reporter, I know there are a few different possible outcomes, and I don't know what his will be. But even as we sped towards New York, in his pocket was a document getting the ball rolling on his deportation. Back in Ecuador, Ramon told me, drug cartels have spread through the country like wildfire. It's gotten terrifying. So he says he sold everything he owned to pay for coyotes. Those are the people who will get you to the U.S. border and across it. He paid them $3,000. He still owes them $2,000. He showed me a picture of three cousins saying goodbye to him. They were smiling. He says his mom and grandma couldn't bear to pose for the picture. They felt too broken by his leaving. I could tell he didn't want to cry in front of me, and he was about to. So I pointed out the window. We were going over the Rockies. Esos se llaman los Rocky Mountains. ¿Cómo es Rocky se llama? ¿Cómo? Rocky, como rocosas. Lo blanco que es nieve. Is that white stuff snow? He asked me. It is. You know, the first time I experienced snow, I told him, it felt like walking on sugar. This cheered him up, and he started talking about how he was going to get a job as soon as he got there, pay off his debt. As he talked, I thought about New York and the over 150,000 people who have arrived in less than two years. New York officials say there's no more room, no more money, and migrants need to stop coming. Almost every single day, I get a wave of desperate text messages from recently arrived people I've interviewed, telling me they're scared, they can't find housing, and are barely surviving. I changed the subject pointed out the window at the Great Plains. A few hours later, the flight attendant announced that we were approaching New York. I explained that we were about to start descending, so he should buckle his seatbelt and press the button on his armrest to straighten his seat. Wait, he said. I could have been reclining this whole time. The plane whined mechanically. Ramon grabbed the front of the seat and gasped. Tranquilo, tranquilo. Como un pajero. I remembered every reassurance I've ever been given by people watching me panic on a plane and told him, Ramon, imagínate que sos un pájaro. Ramon, imagine that you're a bird. And that machine noise is the sound of you extending your wings to land. Suddenly, the city appeared, like an open mouth filled with a million sparkling teeth taking us in. That's New York, I told him. That's Queens, the best borough. Queens. Mm-hmm. I'm already in love with it, he said. I want to go out and see it all. I've seen it in movies. As we taxied to our gate, We sat silently. What do you say to someone who has just landed in New York, several thousand dollars in debt to a cartel, with an immigration court summons in his pocket? So I just turned to him and said, You made it. 
Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is 90.9 WBUR. Voters in New Hampshire are gearing up to cast their primary ballots on Tuesday. Live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primaries starts at 7 o'clock right here at 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the latest conversations with Israel, the U.S. has reaffirmed demands for the future of the Middle East to little success. At virtually every turn, uh, President Biden is being rebuffed uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu. One rejected demand, the idea of a future two-state solution with the Palestinians. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, Iran is backing several groups that are involved in fighting in the Middle East, while the country itself is attacking some of its neighbors. The fact that Iran has claimed credit for the recent attacks in Syria and Iraq means that we're not doing a good job of deterring Iran. I'll have a closer look at Iran's strategy. And this weekend marks 51 years since the Supreme Court's Roe versus Wade decision on abortion. Last year, the Supreme Court overturned Roe, but the annual March for Life went on today just the same. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Jordan is accusing Israel of directly targeting its newest field hospital in Gaza in what it calls deliberate attacks on medical facilities. 
The Israeli military denies it shelled the hospital and says its troops were targeting Hamas fighters. NPR's Jane Araf has more from Oman, Jordan. The Jordanian military said the attack this week in Khan Yunus was the fourth deliberate targeting of its Gaza field hospitals. It said an Israeli tank on Wednesday blocked the hospital gate, firing directly at the hospital and staff bunkers. It said a medic and patient were injured and the field hospital damaged. Jordan, which has a peace treaty with Israel, said it had informed Israeli forces of the hospital's location and whereabouts of staff in order to avoid attack. Jordan's first field hospital, established in Gaza City more than a decade ago, was damaged and seven staff members injured in an Israeli airstrike in November, according to Jordan. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with Mexico's Foreign Affairs Secretary Blinken and Alicia Barcina meeting today at the State Department after last month's high-stakes talks on immigration in Mexico. Blinken, speaking to reporters, confirmed immigration was a major topic of discussion today and praised Mexico's efforts to address what he termed historic challenges the two countries face. We're really grateful to have such a close partner in, in Mexico, and that's borne out every single day in the work we're doing together in so many uh, different areas. Talks come amid increasing criticism from Republican lawmakers and a standoff between Congress and the White House over funding for increased border security. Los Angeles Times employees are on strike today protesting looming layoffs that could cut at least 20 percent of the newsroom. Los Angeles McKenna Sievertson of LAS News has the latest. The one-day walkout is the paper's first in its more than 140-year history. Employees are protesting reported plans to cut at least 100 journalists from the newsroom as it faces a widening budget deficit. The proposed layoffs would be the paper's third round since last June and the largest under the ownership of billionaire Patrick Soon-Shung, who purchased the LA Times in 2018. The paper says management is looking to make cost-saving cuts while holding on to the diverse journalists who have joined in recent years. But employees say losing even more people would be devastating to the newsroom and for journalism in Southern California. For NPR News, I'm McKenna Sievertson in Los Angeles. Consumers are more upbeat heading into the new year. And the latest measure of consumer sentiment, the University of Michigan, says its Consumer Sentiment Index took its biggest two-month bump up since 1991. During the first half of this month, the Consumer Sentiment Index gained 13 percent compared to December. On Wall Street, the broader market has now returned to record levels, capping a two-year round trip that's included high inflation and recession worries. The S&P 500 rose 58 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts General Hospital is again asking for state approval to add 94 inpatient beds. Hospital leaders say they don't have enough space to take care of all the patients who need care. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. Every day, dozens of patients wait hours in Mass General's ER until doctors can find them beds. The hospital's chief financial officer, Sally Mason Bamer, says the crowding is unsustainable. We just can't provide the type of healing environment we would want for patients in hallways and in an overcrowded emergency room. State officials previously approved a $2 billion construction project at Mass General, but denied a request to add beds. Bamer hopes they'll reconsider. I'm very concerned that the longer this capacity crisis goes on, the harder that type of working environment is for our staff. Mass General is already the state's biggest hospital. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. 
The operator of several Massachusetts hospitals says financial challenges are jeopardizing its ability to keep them running. WBR's Deborah Becker reports that the for-profit system Steward Healthcare is in talks with the state to try to stay afloat. In an emailed statement, Stewart says the past few years and the pandemic have devastated community hospitals, including those it operates in Massachusetts. The main issue, Stewart says, is the gap between reimbursement rates for community hospitals and large academic medical centers. Healthcare consultant Dr. John Friedman says if Stewart ends up shuttering some facilities, it'll be a problem. If indeed these practices have to close, even if they're acquired and physicians have to make a shift, it's a logistical nightmare potentially. State lawmakers say they've provided millions in pandemic relief to all hospitals, including stewards, and they'll work with the governor to monitor the situation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA expects its budget gap for the upcoming fiscal year to grow to about $600 million. Today, the T's financial experts blame the new hiring and lower-than-expected ridership for the shortfall. 25 degrees in Boston, some snow flurries left over tonight, mainly well south of Boston and on the Cape. Overnight lows in the teens, then tomorrow overcast, maybe a few flurries, temperatures in the teens to low 20s, sunny on Sunday, inching to the upper 20s. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The U.S. and its ally Israel are fighting Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and Houthis in Yemen. All three of those groups have backing from Iran. Meanwhile, Iran itself has recently attacked targets in Iraq, Syria, and even Pakistan. To talk about Iran's overarching strategy here, we've reached Karim Sajidpour, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Ari. Let's start with the groups that Iran has been supporting in Yemen, Gaza, and Lebanon. What interest does the country have in providing weapons and training to the Houthis or Hezbollah or Hamas? In Iran's 1979 revolution, essentially you had a U.S. allied monarchy, the Shah of Iran, that was replaced almost overnight with a viscerally anti-American theocracy, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And from 1979 to the present, the last 45 years, there's essentially been three pillars to Iran's grand strategy. And the first is to try to evict America from the Middle East. The second is to try to replace Israel with Palestine. And the third is to try to bring down the U.S.-led world order. And what Iran has done very effectively in the Middle East is to fill power vacuums. So the countries where Iran wields influence, you mentioned three of them, but there's really five of them. There's Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Gaza and the Palestinian territories. These are essentially all failing or failed states. And Iran, with its proxies, its militias, has filled these power vacuums in order to try to advance those goals I mentioned earlier, to try to kick out America from the Middle East and replace Israel with Palestine. And obviously, Iran's proxies, the Houthis in Yemen, Hamas in Gaza, Lebanese Hezbollah, share these same goals. If Iran can outsource the fight, then why would it engage in the direct strikes that we've seen 
in Syria, Iraq, and Pakistan recently. And of course, Pakistan is kind of different from the others. It's the only country that is to the east of Iran. So maybe let's Mm -hmm. put a pin in that. Why is Iran engaging in these fights directly? It's an important question, Ari, and it really goes to the challenge and dilemma that the Biden administration has vis-a-vis Iran because the Biden administration clearly does not want to be involved in another conflict in the Middle East. It's clear that the American public, after two decades of failure in Iraq and Afghanistan, don't want to be involved in another conflict in the Middle East. And so on one hand, we're constantly signaling to the Iranian government that we want to de-escalate. We don't want to fight. But the the challenge is, if you're only signaling to them de-escalation, that inadvertently emboldens an adversary like Iran, and then you don't end up deterring them. And so the fact that Iran has actually publicly come out and claimed credit for the recent attacks in Syria and Iraq means that we're not doing a good job of deterring Iran right now. They don't obviously feel that concerned about the costs of this uh, escalation campaign against U.S. forces in the, in the Middle East. And then can you help us understand how Pakistan is involved? It's not immediately clear whether and how that relates to the war in Gaza. The recent skirmish with Pakistan was more of an outlier. You know, on one hand, I understand when, when two large countries, one of which is a nuclear power, are launching strikes on each other's territory, people get very alarmed. But the reality was that Iran went after an opposition group on Pakistani territory. Pakistan responded by growing after the same group of ethnic minorities in Iran, the Baluchis. And the sad thing was, it was essentially just civilians that were killed. And I think there's very little likelihood that Iran and Pakistan, it's going to further deteriorate into a larger conflict. Do you see all of this as just collectively increasing the risk of a direct hot war between the U.S. and Iran? Or are groups like Hamas and Hezbollah serving as proxies that allow the two sides to avoid a direct confrontation? The danger here is if and when either a strike from Iran or one of its proxies actually kills numerous U.S. soldiers or civilians in one of these countries in the Middle East, it's going to be very difficult for the Biden administration to look the other way. Now, the Israeli government in the past has had something called the octopus doctrine, which says we're no longer going to respond to Iran's tentacles in the region. So if Iran's proxies attack us from Lebanon, Syria or or Gaza, we're no longer going to simply respond to those areas, but we're going to go after the head of the octopus in, in Iran. That's also a danger that if there's a, a conflict, a skirmish between Lebanese, Hezbollah and the Israelis, that the Israelis will choose to take the fight to Iran. And so, you know, Iran's technical capacities has has improved quite considerably over the last decade. Their drones, rockets, and missiles are much more precise. But, you know, in the the fog of war, uh, it's certainly a possibility that they could either deliberately or inadvertently kill U.S. soldiers. And I think that's the, the danger that the Biden administration faces. Some of these groups, like the Houthis, have said they'll stop when there's a ceasefire in Gaza. Is that true for Iran itself? Would it de-escalate if the war ends, or is there a different calculus here? I actually don't think that's true for either Iran or its proxies. Hmm. These groups, their strategy is not merely defensive. It's also offensive. They, they genuinely want to 
They don't believe Israel should exist. They want to replace Israel with Palestine. They don't believe there should be U.S. forces in the Middle East. So despite our efforts to, U.S. efforts to try to de-escalate, I think they're going to continue to try to carry out their strategy, their ideology. And I should note, Ari, that there's a distinction between being pro-Palestine and anti-Israel. You know, these groups, Iran and these proxies are definitely anti-Israel, but I wouldn't argue that they're pro-Palestinian and that they are not really doing anything to advance the cause of security and, and prosperity for Palestinians. And in general, Iran and these five proxies I, I talked about, you know, they are essentially presiding over enormous misery in their own population. So in some ways, they're purporting to care more about, um, you know, justice and, and, and prosperity for Palestinians than certainly they provided their own populations. Kareem Sajidpour is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. This weekend marks 51 years since the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision, which established a constitutional right to abortion during the early stages of pregnancy. That decision led to decades of organizing among anti-abortion rights activists who created the annual March for Life rally in Washington, D.C. Even though Roe was overturned in 2022, the march continues. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz was at this year's march and joins us now. Hi there. Hi. So Jacqueline, now that Roe's been overturned, what what is the focus of the March for Life? Well, event organizers and some folks at the march today said the focus for anti-abortion activists is now especially on changing state laws to further restrict abortion access. Their message today was the fight is not over. So when Roe was overturned, it left the decision on abortion restrictions up to states. More than a dozen states have total or near abortion bans. But in each instance where abortion rights have been on the ballot since the Supreme Court's reversal, anti-abortion advocates have lost. Now, it is not exactly a warm day in Washington, D.C., yet you were out there with the marchers at the March for Life. Tell us what you saw and heard from people there. Uh In addition to the snow, um, uh, thousands of people showed up to march this morning. I spoke to Kathy Johnston from Ohio, who shared what two years after Rose reversal means for the movement. I don't think it went far enough, but I think that we were all aware that it was just going to move it from a national level to a state level and that the fight wasn't done. And Johnston added that she believes that the issue over abortion access is now correctly placed at the state level. But other people still believe it's the responsibility of the federal government to restrict abortion access across the board. Here's Lesik Siski from Maryland. Ultimately, we we don't want to just make abortion illegal. We want to make it unthinkable. So it's going to be still a long, long, long struggle. And here's that he's actually here for his 50th March for Life. His 50th March. Wow. I mean, every year this march draws people from around the country. And that includes some from states where voters have already decided on abortion measures. Is that figuring into today's event? Yeah, so speakers at the march encourage the marchers to bring the fight over abortion back home and continue to reinforce the idea that the fight to restrict abortion is not over. 
That's especially because in the aftermath of the Supreme Court overturning the constitutional right to abortion, there's been a concerted effort among abortion rights activists to take the issue directly to voters via ballot initiatives and other measures. Like in Johnston's home state of Ohio, where voters last November decided to amend their state constitution to guarantee the right to abortion and other reproductive rights. And this is going to be a big part of what we follow in this election year, which states ultimately have more ballot measures on the table for voters in November. And of course, voters will also be voting this year in the presidential election. A lot of focus on that. So Jacqueline, how did the upcoming election and national politics figure in at today's event? Uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson and other lawmakers spoke at the rally before marchers took to the street. During Johnson's speech, he told the crowd his parents were teenagers when his mother unexpectedly became pregnant with him. He made digs at President Biden, who received some boos from the crowd. That's because Biden's campaign continues to make abortion a central focus, saying abortion rights is a driving issue for voters. Vice President Kamala Harris is kicking off a reproductive freedoms tour next week in Wisconsin. She's planning to travel across the country to host events that highlight the impacts abortion bans have had. And on Tuesday, Biden and Harris will appear on stage at a campaign rally in Northern Virginia to mark the anniversary of Roe. That's NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here on this Friday evening at 90.9 WBUR. Congress has yet again narrowly avoided a government shutdown, but even the specter of a shutdown ends up costing taxpayers money. We'll find out how tonight in business news, starting at 6.30. On Wall Street, some significant gains today. The Dow pulled in more than 1 percent. S&P jumped to an all-time high today as it rose nearly one and a quarter percent. The Nasdaq grew by nearly one and three quarters quarters percent. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning, coaching, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. The State Transportation Department is urging drivers to use caution on the roads tonight. We haven't gotten a lot of snow, but the state says crews are chemically treating highways, which are pretty slick in spots. At Logan Airport, more than 250 flights were delayed today. Airline tracker FlightAware is reporting 40 cancellations. Massport blames the problems on winter weather across the U.S. And speaking of winter weather and cold... Here's WBOR's meteorologist, Danielle Noyce. Some areas of snow in the south shore to Cape Cod will taper off through the evening hours. Not much accumulation, but scattered coatings to an inch or so around the canal and as much as two to three inches on Cape Cod. So be mindful of some slick spots out there tonight. We'll drop into the teens overnight. Wind chill values dip to around zero. Tomorrow will be cloudy with some ocean effect snow showers on the outer Cape. We won't get out of the teens and low 20s for highs tomorrow. Wind gusts occasionally over 20 will add that bite to the air. Wind chill values only in the single digits. The sun's back on Sunday. Highs in the upper 20s, still breezy, so it'll feel like the teens at the warmest time of the day. 25 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. It's 621.
WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A rift is deepening between the Biden administration and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The backdrop is the war in Gaza and what the future should hold for Palestinians. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. President Biden used to speak to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu regularly in the first months of the Gaza war. But today they held their first conversation in nearly a month. In a press conference last night, Netanyahu said sometimes he has to say no even to Israel's best friends, meaning the U.S. Netanyahu is rejecting the U.S. demand for a two-state solution to the conflict, Israel living alongside a future state of Palestine. Netanyahu said for the foreseeable future, Israel must hold security control over the entire territory, because Israel has been attacked from areas it relinquished. At virtually every turn, uh, President Biden is being rebuffed uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu. Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen speaking to NPR. President Biden has tried to jawbone Netanyahu into reducing the number of civilian casualties, allowing more humanitarian assistance into Gaza, uh, talking about a two-state future to provide some light at the end of this very dark tunnel. And Prime Minister Netanyahu is giving the United States the stiff arm. Before the Hamas attack on October 7th and Israel's military bombardment of Gaza, the U.S. was trying to broker historic diplomatic ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Yesterday, the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. said that would be possible if there's a ceasefire in Gaza and a guaranteed path toward a Palestinian state. Such a deal with Saudi Arabia would be Netanyahu's number one priority, but he's being tied down by his far-right political partners who oppose any more rights for Palestinians. David Makovsky of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy says President Biden wants Netanyahu to fight off his far-right flank, just as Biden is fighting off outrage among progressive Democrats over the war. I think he says, listen, you know, man, this is a war isn't easy. We, we, we want the same things. We want Israel safe from the terror of Hamas. You know, we're doing things that are hard for us. You should do things that are hard for you. There's also a rift growing inside Netanyahu's own war cabinet about where Israel should take the war next. One of the five officials in the inner circle leading the war, Gadi Eisenkot says only a ceasefire can get Israeli hostages out of Gaza and not the military pressure Netanyahu says is needed. On Israeli TV, he said Netanyahu shares responsibility for the, quote, biggest security failure in the country's history and called for elections within months. Those are signs of frustration with Netanyahu, not just from the Biden administration, but from within Israel's own war cabinet. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. China's premier spoke this week at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, saying the Chinese economy is doing just fine and making a pitch to international investors that China is open for business. But as NPR's John Ruich reports, other signals out of Beijing have been conveying a different message. As premier, it's Li Qiang's job to talk up the economy. 
Here he is speaking through an interpreter at Davos. In the past five years, the return on foreign investment, foreign direct investment in China stands at around 9%, which is quite competitive globally. So I would say that choosing the Chinese market is not a risk, but an opportunity. But Li's message stands in contrast to what his boss seems to be focused on. That's Chinese leader Xi Jinping speaking at parliament last year. Security is the foundation for development, he says. Stability is a prerequisite for prosperity. Sheena Chestnut-Greitens is a China expert at the University of Texas, Austin. So I think that the idea that economic growth created the basis for stability for the, the Chinese Communist Party was the conventional wisdom. And I think that was the conventional wisdom until pretty recently. So he's actually inverted the cause and effect in that relationship. And that's meant the economy is increasingly seen through the lens of security. That's had a noticeable effect, according to Dan Rosen, a partner at the Rhodium Group, an economic research firm. A year ago, virtually all of the CEOs and senior executives that we speak to at Rhodium Group believed that by the end of the year, China as they knew it was going to be back. The country's draconian COVID rules were in the rearview mirror, and everyone expected the economy to rev back up. But it didn't. By December 31st, or really by the fall of 2023, I'd say 100% of the CEOs felt differently. Not only were the authorities not taking strong enough measures to revive the economy, some thought, they were doing other things that made businesses nervous. Those include the rollout of tough rules on data security and revisions to an anti-espionage law that limit the kind of information that companies can collect in China. There have been raids on a handful of Western consultancies, and the authorities have intensified a campaign to root out spies. Business confidence has suffered. A survey by the European Chamber of Commerce in China a few months ago showed that two-thirds of its members said it had become harder to do business in China over the prior year. Three in five said they were losing business opportunities because of red tape or regulation. Foreign direct investment, in particular, has fallen off a cliff. Basically, China is facing a, a dilemma. Ling Chen is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. They need to promote economic growth on the one hand, and also emphasize the securitization of the economy on the other hand. Balancing that has been tough. Different agencies have sent out conflicting signals. The usually secretive Ministry of State Security, for instance, has recently become vocal about the economy. Chen says the contradictions show that the authorities are responding to internal pressure as the economy slows and external pressure as trade and political frictions with the U.S. and others grow. They first of all have to prioritize survival. Um, before they talk about other things like diversifying the economy. But it's a catch-22. At some point, analysts say survival also requires a dynamic economy. And there have been recent signs that the government is aware of that fact. They've been ramping up steps to support growth. And in August, the authorities issued a list of 24 measures to stabilize foreign investment. Jens Eskeland, president of the European Chamber of Commerce in China, says that's welcome, but it raises a question. What we're asking ourselves is whether this is just a tactical play until China is doing better economically and has become more self-reliant, or is it an expression of, of a real shift in, in attitude? A tactical play or a real shift in attitude? 
He says people he's talked to who've been in China a while tend to be on the cynical side. John Ruich, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Gas prices are down, stock prices are up, and Americans are starting to take notice. Public sentiment on the economy has jumped sharply in the last two months. Our story tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Start your weekend right here. The Denver Nuggets come to the Garden tonight, giving the Celtics another chance to keep intact their unbeaten home record this year. 7.30 tip-off time. The Bruins play tomorrow. What snow fell today mostly came down south of Boston and on Cape Cod. Just about an inch or two, but enough to make for icy roads there and elsewhere around the region, so be careful out there. Tonight, temperatures drop to the teens, but the wind should make it feel bitterly cold. Tomorrow, cloudy, maybe some snow flurries in the teens and low 20s. Sunday, sunny and still cold. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com.